Tonight, I'd like to introduce you to Professor Claire Bryant from the um, veterinary departments in um, Cambridge University. She's actually the chair of Cambridge Immunology and will chair tonight's session. Thank you very much for coming along tonight and welcome. So first of all, I'd like to thank Tammy, because she's done a sterling job of whipping us all into shape and getting us here today. Uh, it's a pleasure for us to be here, and we've got some really lovely, talented speakers tonight who are world experts in what they do, so I hope you'll enjoy their presentations. I'll just get started, first of all. The theme of the science there is, is about personalised uh, medicine, really. And uh, I was thinking quite a lot about this recently, uh, having read a few articles in the newspaper. So who, who here's got a Fitbit? or a Vivo Active, or an equivalent. Okay, so are you all dedicated to your 10,000 steps a day? Okay. But why are you dedicated to 10,000 steps a day? See, so, so I read in the newspaper, I thought, oh, 10,000 steps a day, where did this come from? So apparently it comes from uh, the Fitbit uh, was originally based around a pedometer, which was thought up in the, uh, around the 1964 Tokyo Olympics by a Japanese guy, and he made this uh, pedometer, and he called it the, let me see if I can pronounce it, where is it, the Manpo K, which apparently means 10,000 step meter. But actually, there's not a great deal of science that this is based on. So the concept is that actually if you walk 10,000 steps a day, you'll burn about 300 calories. So in a week, that's about 3,000 calories. Uh, sorry, 2,000 calories. And so, you know, that's, that's about what you need to do for your average exercise. But this is kind of based around some Japanese men so really, does one size fit all? It's kind of interesting. So is it the same for somebody who's older? What about somebody who's younger? What if you're fit? Or what if you're not so fit? What if you're slightly on the heavy side? Or what if you're not so heavy? And would it actually help you lose weight? And of course, actually, there's, there's very little scientific basis to suggest that this, any of this will actually help you. And in fact, there's starting to be some evidence emerging that suggests that all these fitness apps might actually be quite bad for you because they're putting people under stress to perform every day. So, so it's kind of an interesting concept, but, but you can rest assured that the, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, tech industry is very, very happy because people are downloading billions of health apps every day with very little scientific evidence to support them. So it's kind of quite a good argument for thinking about you know, personalization because really a fitness regime presumably should be based around yourself. But then there are other extremes. So I was on a flight, and I opened the BA Business magazine and nearly choked when I read this article. Um, so I should slightly put this in, concept, uh, in context, because I manage a very big wine cellar uh, in Cambridge as one of my part-time jobs. So I am a bit of a wine enthusiast. Um, and I've just come back from California, and I went to Napa. And when I was in Napa, I went to some wine shops, and there were some very nice wines there. They were charging way too much money for them, but they were very nice. But in my opinion, they weren't worth the money. And so I read in this magazine about this company called Vinome. So what if boutique bottles perfectly matched to you could be delivered to your door? I mean, what a concept. So life uncorked, Vinome brings you the ultimate personalized wine experience. Harnessing the science of taste, we analyze your DNA and match wines to you that you will love for the princely sum of $65 a bottle. So, you have Vino plus Genome, that gives you Vinome. And here are the jolly team of scientists that are behind it all. So, I kind of, I did nearly choke, I have to say. Um, and they, what they said was that the scientists at Vinome contacted and did hundreds of scientific studies and they pulled all this science together and they, they looked at your DNA and that they could tell from your DNA the genes that were important for your unique, distinct wine palette. So what they do is they take a DNA sample from you, they do some kind of mysterious genome analysis, and then they decide what you're like. And what they say is it's based on uh, gene variants and genes such as this, which is the TAS2R38 gene, which is a really important gene actually because it's a taste receptor that determines whether or not you like Brussels sprouts, and that actually there is some evidence to support that. Um, and their lead scientist is a lady called Sarah Warden. I, I did a, a data search on Sarah Warden to see what she'd done. Nothing on DNA and taste. She's done some stuff on DNA. And she acknowledges that her team found virtually nothing in scientific literature that linked DNA variations with wine affinity for certain wines. 
which I thought was kind of interesting. And uh, so what they, were, what they did was they analysed the company, this is what they say, 40 genetic variants across 500 people. And then they got participants to do a survey with their taste preferences. And this is what they based their whole company on. Okay? None of this data is published. None of this data is published in peer-refereed uh, articles. So what we do as scientists is we, we do a piece of work, we send it to try and get it published, try being the operative word, and it's then reviewed by our colleagues to see if it's any good and to see if the science is correct. There were no control groups, there was no proper experimental design. So there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing in the literature on this at all. I did do a literature search to see where we were with peer-reviewed papers, and there is one peer-reviewed paper, which is quite interesting, uh, it is, they looked at a uh, 3,000 people, 3,800 people, and what they found was a polymorphism in an immune gene, which was linked to whether or not you like red wine and whether or not you like white wine. And it was more important than women than men. But that's it. That's all there is in the peer database, peer review database. So there's really nothing much out there. And this, I, I then read a few quotes in the magazine, and what was most interesting when I did a search on the web was that Vinome is backed by one of the biggest um, DNA sequencing companies in the world. So that's where they got their money from. Um, and so to say that there is no science involved, they, they said it's pretty much about as likely to work as using uh, DNA analysis to match you to a partner on a dating website. So utterly, utterly ridiculous. But but what I particularly liked was, was, was Vinom's motto, which is a little bit of science and a lot of fun. But I would say, actually, it's zero science and no fun because you don't get to do the trial and error. <laughs> but the CEO, Ronnie Andrews, says, I hear the scepticism, but these people just aren't wine fans. So clearly, I am not a wine fan. <laughs> so anyway, what has all this got to do with microbes and immunity? Well, I told you that the only genetic evidence on uh, wine taste is uh, linked to an immune gene, the HLA gene. Uh, if you exercise, if you do enough of it, you'll suppress your immunity. Um, taste is altered by infections in the immune status. And, of course, wine was made by microbes. So what more can you say? So we will move swiftly on to the proper uh, immunity and microbe science. And first up, we'll have Micah, who works at Adam Brooks, who's going to talk to us about uh, some of the CD8 T cells and their links to cancer. Thank you, Micah. Thank you. Welcome, everybody, to today's session on the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it's hopefully a, a little bit entertaining, maybe not as much as the Western, but today I'd like to focus on, the first, on, on basically the first words here, the good, and talk to you about one of my favorite cells, which is the cell here in green, which is a CD8-positive T cell that in, uh, can differentiate to, into cytotoxic T lymphocytes. And they, they can do a lot of things that we go into, but the main thing that they do is they kill tumor cells and virally infected cells. And this is actually a cytotoxic T lymphocyte caught in the act in killing a tumor cell. But to step uh, back, we, I just put up this slide to make us realize what a numerous and powerful workforce we have in our body. And in a, a mill of peripheral blood, actually you have 4.5 to 10 million immune cells. And a fraction of these are the ones that I'm particularly interested, the CD8 T cells. And these cells here shown in the middle, they're not only beautiful, but they're also extremely useful. So they are crucial in our defense against infection, and these are infections by intracellular pathogens, so microbial infection of a lot of sources, and uh, they also can generate a memory. That means if you have measles once, when you are a young child, you won't get it again, and that is not because you're not re-exposed to the virus, it's because of these uh, very, very efficient cells that will clean up a secondary infection. 
and there also have been uh, in recent years uh, on the top uh, page of, uh, of the news because we realized after a long, um, long time of neglection in a renaissance period that these cells are actually very important to stop tumor progression. These are the cells that if they are in the tumor tissue, they are um, associated with a very good prognosis and they are at the heart of immunotherapy that you might uh, see in the news and that I'll explain a little bit later. But what, um, how do they do the job? And this is a little cartoon that I've drawn. So here you see this, uh, what you've seen in real life where the CTL, and this can be an infected target cell or a tumor cell. And uh, you see that when, uh, so when these um, CTLs recognize their specific target cell, and they do that via a very specialized receptor, it's called the T-cell receptor that is expressed by T-cells, and they form an interface which is called immunological synapse. And then at this interface, they, um, they remove their cytoskeleton, actin cytoskeleton a little bit, and then they polarize their cytotoxic machinery. So they are called cytotoxic T-cells because they have these granules shown in green here and red in this lovely real-life picture. And they contain very, very toxic molecules for any cell. And the, the CTL now does what we call the kiss of death. It's not really, but you can imagine it's very, very focused and it makes, destroys the target cell rapidly because these cytotoxic molecules, they are really targeted only where the bad tumor cell or infected cell has been detected. And this, if you think about it, makes this killing the, we have a lot of killer cells inside us, but because they won't um, detect normal cells and they can secrete their cytotoxic material very, very focusedly, that makes it safe for all surrounding bystander cells that are uninfected or non-tumorogenic. So, and this is um, a film that is done in Gillian Griffith's lab here in the CMR where I did my postdoctoral training and I just, it's so impressive to me all the time when I watch it because it shows you how quickly and efficient this CTL killing is. And if you watch the time, if you can't read it, uh, I'll tell you how long it took really, uh, but you watch it and these are tumor cells that we can label in the lab in certain fluorescent colors. And here in this case we labeled also the cytotoxic T lymphocyte. In a green is a, is a cytoskeletal component, actin, and when you watch when these red granules get secreted, how quickly this tumor cell dies. Now, so you see these granules get secreted and the tumor cell shrivels up and gets rapidly destroyed, and we are only at 13 minutes. So this is really, really fast killing. And then this cytotoxic T cell that reverses polarity, so it just turns itself around and moves on to find many more targets because these kill cells can also kill many tumor cells, so they are serial killers. So <laughs> what makes this now, what makes this so powerful, the CDAT cell response, if you think about it? So for sure, we have them in ourselves. But the main thing is really that they are very specific. That means via their T-cell receptor, they recognize here, you can't see it very well, it's only an illustration, uh, a structure that basically is foreign, either by, done, induced by infectious microbes or um, by, by uh, tumor cell um, new antigens, we could call. And only then these killers get activated. Otherwise, they stay very, very small and quiescent. And also, they are very specific, as I told you before, because their killing mechanism is so efficient. They are also durable, if you think back of the, of the um, example with the measles, because they generate cells when they get activated, not only the super killers, but they generate also a memory component. And this memory component basically stays in us, has self-renewal capacity like a stem cell, 
kind of thing, and keeps on feeding. As soon as it receives uh, an, an infection, it can proliferate much more rapidly and kill the infection off. And here, it, uh, this is adaptable or evolving output because we have a lot of different T cells in our body. So we have every T cells has another T cell receptor that so in theory, we can fight infections and tumors of a lot of uh, origins. So this is pretty great. And if it that's so great and if it's there and available all the time, why not use it? And that's maybe the, the time for why they have been actually at the heart of immunotherapy. And that's now we are focusing a little bit on cancer, but also um, immunotherapy is probably getting into chronic infection as well and so forth. And only as a spotlight, I want to tell you a little bit what uh, adoptive T-cell therapy means and what immunomodulatory um, <coughs> antibodies are all about. And this is all at the, at, uh, so these are um, numbers from Cancer Research UK, and it shows us that cancer is actually, in fact, something that we have to deal with. With, in the UK in, in 2014, 357,000 new cases of cancers were diagnosed, 163,000 cancer deaths uh, in the same year, and because of our aging population, the incidence rate is, is, um, uh, is supposed to increase by 2% uh, and by 2035. And certainly immunotherapy has made the, um, has made the news, and this is only uh, an example of CAR therapy, where Lila Richards in London received CAR T cells. Uh, there have been unprecedented response rates that we can discuss later, and we have modulatory antibodies approved in the UK now. And um, now, um, the, um, just to a little historic um, perception, why did we forget all about it? Because immunotherapy, is actually a pretty old hat. So this is William Coley, who actually picked up what Paul Ehrlich and Robert Koch and others had uh, actually thought about um, much earlier, especially Paul Ehrlich. He said, there must be a force that actually controls um, cancer cells in the body. And uh, what William Coley, a bone surgeon in uh, New York, discovered is that when patients got infected with a bacterium, with a streptococcus uh, subspecies, that they sometimes rejected their tumor. So as if this bacterial activation then led to tumor progression. But sadly, he didn't have enough patients and, and never could really prove it in, in big cohorts and didn't publish on it, coming back to Claire's. And so, and radiotherapy as a tumor therapy came on the, on the market, so it was forgotten. And although there was a, a cancer um, a study in blood cancer, really it didn't have much of an impact. But with the discovery of growth factors and, and the immune system and its complexity over the years, there were actually three milestones that were uh, in, in research that were discovered. And here only as examples, Steve Rosenberg was one of the first to actually inject T cells so took t tumor T cells from patients and injected them back. Zelig um, Escher was the first person to, to generate the first CAR T cell, and I explain what that is in the end. And you might have heard of James Allison, who actually discovered this molecule CTLA-4 that now are antibodies directed to reinvigorate our immune response or release the breaks as the, the media does it. And this is then paralleled, so, but you see these were all in, in the 1980s and 90s, and now we are facing really a, um, a, a, a period of a renaissance because around 2000 then there were a couple of papers out that really showing that the CDAT cells and the immune cells is very, very important in tumor therapy. And uh, this is then maybe illustrated by um, this, uh, by, early checkpoint inhibitors and uh, cancer immunocellular cancer immunotherapy approved in 2010 and 11. And also um, the big thinking has, um, has uh, kicked in in saying that actually avoiding of immune destruction is also a new hallmark of cancer. So 
what is this adoptive T-cell therapy about? So it's very simple. You try to extract tumor infiltrating T-cells out of tumors. You try to grow them up to enormous masses and you inject them back to the patient. And, uh, the, and uh, the second one is you, can, you don't have to extract these low numbers out of the tumor, but also you can take blood cells and expand them and inject them back, or you can do a little trick and take blood cells and make them specific to the tumor. And this is what this little girl um, for her leukemia received. And this is a CAR T cell. If you have questions, we can discuss this later on. And this is now, um, last slide, so what is the checkpoint? So I think, so in my personal view and my, my kids, there are two boys and they think that the T cells are a little bit like superheroes. And they can um, kill these tumors, but the tumor tries to evade and also immune cells, other immune cells try to dampen the immune system. And this is now if we focus on, and, uh, on this first receptor pair. That is, the tumor and other immune cells will upregulate PD, uh, PD-1 ligands. And uh, so what, that hap what happens then to the superhero, they get really exhausted. So that means they are non-functional and they don't do their job. And what Checkpoint Blockade now tries to do, it tries to block these receptor pairs that normally inhibiting the T cell and gets rid of them and invigorates the superhero, so to say. And uh, so what is uh, the obstacles? The obstacles in this is all the response rate in the T cell therapy and also in checkpoint blockade because that is all very, very low and we have to understand what this is and we have to deal with side effects that occur when you act overactivate this immune system. So take home messages are then that our natural CD8 immunity is very effective and powerful and that the immunotherapy holds great promises, but there's a lot that we don't understand yet, and we definitely need more research to do so. And yeah, so that's it. And these are my funders and my bosses, former bosses. Thank you, Marta. Lovely to <laughs> Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Owen McKinney. I work in the Department of Medicine up in, in Addenbrookes. And uh, what I'm going to talk about autoimmunity. And, and Mike has already introduced the good, which I thought is a bit rude because she's basically left me with the bad and the ugly. Um, <laughs> and I've been called both, but uh, let's see how this works. But actually, the good, the bad, and the ugly is a very useful, unlike this slide advancer. Uh, it's a very useful analogy for the immune system uh, because actually your immune system in effect is one big long fight and it's one big long fight that's been going on not just since you've been born but it's one big long fight that's been going on since before humans even emerged and uh, it's basically a, a continual fight between you and your environment uh, so you're constantly exposed to microorganisms, to pathogens, to bugs. We'll hear more about them later. But you're constantly having to fight them off and defend yourself against them the whole way through. So, I mean, I don't know if anyone's familiar with the film, but uh, as with all Westerns, I mean, in this one, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Clint's the good, because he always is. Uh, but it's not as straightforward as that. As that. Uh, and you know, at certain points, Clint isn't being quite so good. Uh, he's shooting at people, doing things he shouldn't be doing. And in fact, your, your immune system's like that as well. It's not as clear-cut as being good and bad. Sometimes it's a, it is ugly as well. Sometimes it's great, sometimes it's not. But in order to understand how it goes wrong, what you have to really understand is where it's come from and its development and the, the, the length of time that this fight has been going on for. And by, by a long fight, what I really mean is the evolution of your immune system. So it's basically evolved over millions and millions and millions of years, and it's a continual arms race, and it's a good analogy for the good, the bad, and the ugly, because it is effectively, a, a, involves weapons, as Mike had quite nicely showed. You're continually trying to optimize the weaponry at your disposal in your immune system to kill bugs, but by contrast, they are continually evolving to try and get away from you, to try and escape you, to try, and that's where resistant bugs come from. They're just evolving away from the weapons that you've got and away from antibiotics as well. And that's a problem because we have to stay on our toes and we have to evolve our immune systems to keep pace 
And that's going to always be the case. And we're going to have to keep evolving to keep pace with bugs. And constantly things can go wrong. And you don't just have to deal with all the bugs that are possibly out there at the moment. So malaria, TB, staphylococcus. You don't have to just deal with all of those. Your immune system has to be prepared to deal with all of the bugs that might ever turn up as well. So new ones that might emerge. And one of the key ways in which it does that is by producing an almost endless series of variety. So you've got a set of genes in your genome that produce immune receptors, and the genes basically get chopped up into little bits in such a way that they get re uh, recombined into the many different patterns. And it means that inside your body right now, your immune system has the ability to recognize a literally mind-bogglingly huge number of pa possible patterns. And that means that you can recognize almost any bug that's out there and almost any bug that ever might be out there, which is great. Because it means if there's an epidemic, at least some of us will be left behind. Um, now, just to put that, I don't really have a good frame of reference for that number, but to give you an idea, it's too big. I've never seen anything that big. Uh, what that basically means, that's about roughly the number of grains of sand it would take to fill this room. So that's inside your body right now. That's the range and diversity of your immune system. But that's great if you're fighting cancer. It's fantastic. But you've probably seen those adverts where things try and boost your immune system. Give it a boost. Make you feel better. Mm, it's more complicated than that. It isn't just good and bad. There's some ugly. And in fact, having huge power in your immune system, uh, great power, you need great control. Uh, and it's true of tires. This was a tire advert in the 1980s. But it's also true of your immune system. You have hugely powerful weaponry at your disposal, but it has to be controlled. And it isn't as simple as just boosting it and suppressing it. It has to be controlled. It has to be able to work in the right circumstances very quickly. But at the same time, its fundamental problem with all of these different patterns that you've generated, the fundamental problem is you have to fight off all the bugs that might turn up, but you have to leave yourself alone. You have to discriminate between what's out there that's dangerous and pathogenic, and you have to not touch any of the proteins inside your own body, because the minute you do, there's trouble. And by trouble, I mean autoimmune disease. So auto means self, not car, as some people suggest. Uh, so but autoimmune disease is basically where you mount an immune response against a bit of yourself. So it's a mistake. It's where your immune system has got it wrong, and instead of fighting against a bug, or sometimes as well as fighting against a bug, it's fighting against a, a bit of yourself and causing disease. An autoimmune disease can come in a huge range of flavors, and the reason being, it what you end up experiencing as a patient depends on which bit of you is getting targeted. If it happens to be that you're targeting your pancreas that produces insulin and controls your blood sugar, your immune system can very quickly destroy your pancreas. And if it does that, you've got autoimmune diabetes. If it starts to attack your joints, you might end up with rheumatoid arthritis. If it attacks your nerves, you might end up with multiple sclerosis. There are a range of different diseases that you might have heard of. And the type and flavor of the disease that you get depends on which bit's being attacked. But fundamentally, these are all come under the umbrella of autoimmune or inflammatory diseases. Your immune system in each case has made the mistake and is fighting you instead of or as well as bugs. So how does this happen? Why does this happen? Surely we've spent millions of years evolving. We must be better than that. In a couple of million years, you sh we should surely have got it right by now. Well, to understand why and how it can happen, you need to consider what happens in nature. And here's a quick quiz. Which one's the bird poo? And there can be serious consequences of getting it wrong. This is relevant. You'll see in a second. So if you were a fly and you got it wrong... That would have some quite substantial consequences because this is a spider hiding as a bird poo. Fly walks past and gets eaten. And it's a good example of mimicry in nature. But that sort of mimicry also happens in bugs, pathogens, microbes. And they can mimic humans. And you can imagine that the more a bug might look like a human, the less I am likely to fight it off because I might, well, that's part of me. I'm not going to touch it. And as they evolve in this arms race continually, bugs looking more like us, uh, they can fl effectively fly under the radar of our sophisticated weaponry and our immune system and get away with it. But what that means is to evolve and keep pace with them, we're constantly fighting this battle, the Western, the good, the bad, and the ugly inside us all. We're constantly fighting that on the edges of actually attacking our own bodies. So to be able to fight off bugs properly, we always run the risk of, of fighting our own bodies, and that's, that's a problem. 
So the, the actual theme here isn't just autoimmunity, though you can clearly see how your immune system might go wrong. The theme of the, of the festival is personalized immunity and personalized medicine. So that's basically what I do. That's my day job, at least researching it is. Um, and what's key about your immune response is that your immune response is not the same as your immune response, and it's not the same as your immune response, it's not the same as your immune response. It's very different. And we mentioned the number of possible patterns with the grains of sand in the room. Well, that's the number of patterns each of us has, but your patterns are different than your patterns, different to your patterns. Everyone's are different, and everyone's immune response is different. And what that means is when you get an immune disease, your disease is different to your disease, which is different to your disease. And that isn't traditionally how we've approached medicine. We've chucked people into buckets and said, mm, you've got some swollen joints, you're not feeling great, you might have arthritis. Your pancreas doesn't work, you've got diabetes. And those are clean buckets. But what's becoming clear is that inside of that little umbrella of disease, there's huge variation between different patients. And starting to understand that is basically what personalized medicine is. And because your immune system is so variable, being able to measure and understand the variation between people with the same disease even uh, is important and very useful. Uh, I'll mention some of the ways in which we're trying to do that. Uh, there's a lot of interest in this from government and uh, many more bodies trying to push it and come up with better ways of doing it now. And some of the ways in which we're doing it actually uh, boil down to the same sort of thing you're doing right now with, all, with each other. What we do in, in uh, research is we take different aspects of the immune system and we use technological advances to measure everything. We do massively parallel measurements, millions and millions and millions of readings from your immune system. And the main thing we measure is whether genes are switched on or not. And what you get is your entire genome telling you which genes are on, which ones are off, how much they're on, how much they're off. And that gives you a huge big data set, a big mountain of data. But, and then what we do is we try and work out what the patterns in there are. And that's the bit that you're doing right now. Because when you look at each other, when you look at your mum, your dad, your brother, your sister, you recognize them. And the way visual recognition works is you just recognize the patterns. And when you go through the airport and you go through the thing that rec recognizes it's you and your passport, this is what it does. It just reduces your face and all of that complexity down to a series of patterns, ones and zeros in a big square of numbers. And it sticks it into a computer and it says, yep, that matches that, fair enough, off you go. And you do that. That's what your brain does when you recognize each other. And that's what we're starting to do in these big mountains of data from your immune system. So we can effectively boil your immune system down to different patterns. And what we come up with is a bit like a barcode. I, I, was, I was in Dublin yesterday and I just came back. This was my I have a budget airline, I have to tell you. Uh, this is my boarding pass. Well, you get a barcode and that lets the airline know that it's me and it lets it, lets it know how much it can rip me off when I, get, when I get on and how much to charge me for going to the toilet or whatever. Um, but we effectively can barcode your immune response in a similar sort of way. We can measure all of these different parameters of your immune system <coughs> and turn it into what looks a bit like a barcode. And that tells me that you're different than you, than you, than you. And we can then compare those patterns to different features of your, of your disease, how easy it is to treat, which drugs might work, and it gives us a handle on actually measuring an immune response that we've never really had in the past. And that's what we're now starting to use, these different patterns, and we're matching them. We've now found patterns that will tell us whether someone's going to have very bad disease, whether their disease is going to continually relapse all the time, or whether it's going to disappear quite easily. Because we know that people with disease have a very different patterns. Some of their disease is easy to treat. Some of it's very difficult to treat. But we can now predict that in advance. Uh, and we're beginning to use these patterns to actually target treatments in a personalized way and to understand even if you have the same disease as your friend, you might need a different treatment than they do. And that is where personalized medicine's heading at the moment. So thanks very much for listening. I'd be very happy to, to, to have some questions later. And I just thank, uh, the the, lots of people give us money to do research, but the key thing I should state uh, is the patients and volunteers that we work with through Adam Brooks, that, that uh, without that we couldn't do any research. So thank you. Thanks, Sam, for another great talk. And finally, we reach the micro. And Sam is here to talk to us about microbes. So, yeah, I'm here to talk about microbes, which isn't obviously part of the immune system, which might strike you as a bit interesting, but particularly the microbiota. So 
When we talk about the microbiota, what we're really talking about is the natural bacteria, the health-associated bacteria that live on every one of us. It's only an area we've really starting to come to terms with, but it's very important. So gastrointestinal microbiota, the area that I'm really interested in, it's made up of many, many different species of bacteria. Everything from your stomach right through your small intestine down to your colon. Most of your bacteria hangs out in your colon. And when we look at what's actually in there, it's actually absolutely remarkable. We have somewhere between 100 and 1,000 species. We don't actually know how many. We have somewhere in the range of 100 trillion cells. Again, an estimate we don't really know. And what's really important is we have a million genes. So you think about the diversity that that actually represents. It's a massive pool of things that can help us in our immune response or can cause damage. To put these numbers in perspective, if we consider the bacterial pool that we're, um, that we're looking at in a sample, if we consider the number of cells in a human, that's about the scale um, we're going with. And if we consider the number of genes, there's actually, you probably can't even make it out, but sitting down here, and if we zoom in a bit, sitting here, that's the, that's the difference in number of cells in a person, uh, number of genes in a person compared to the number of genes in your microbiota. So you can see straight away there's a massive potential for affecting what's going on. Um, and actually there's a massive just number of bacteria we're carrying around with us every day. So if you want to be really uh, depressed about the whole situation, you can visualise yourself like this. A person carrying bacteria around and your fundamental job is to let them get from A to B. <laughs> Obviously that would be a pretty depressing uh, way to look at the world. And it's actually not correct, obviously. The way we think it actually works is much more complicated. We think we have this series of bacteria that we carry around with us, and they actually provide critical functions to what we're doing. So we, they interact with us on a daily basis. They're up against all the surfaces of our body, and we actually can interact with them and uh, end up with good biological outcomes rather than the negative pathogen-associated outcomes that we usually think of. So... The obvious question is, why would we want these bacteria around? They, we, ha we know pathogens, everybody thinks of pathogens, but pathogens are actually the minority. These are the majority of the bacteria, we just don't study them very well. And we've heard already the adaptive immune response helps to protect us. We haven't heard much about it, but the innate immune response, so things like toll-like receptors, nod-like receptors, they sit on typically epithelial cells and detect the presence of either pathogens or particular uh, molecular patterns. And then we have uh, barriers, so things like mucus layers that help to keep pathogens out. And what I put to you is actually the microbiota is the next layer of the immune response. So what we have is we have these bacteria that are ideally suited for detecting the environment around them, that's what bacteria do, and they interact with us through various signaling pathways and warn us, they're like sentries, they warn us when something's going wrong and allow our immune system to then kick in and actually um, respond and um, solve the problem. So it's easy to say this, but how do we prove it? So it's pretty, we, if we think about it, we can make now, we can, we can create um, in, in animal models, we can create um, animals that don't have any microbiota. So these are what we call germ-free, perhaps more accurately microbe-free um, animals. And we can ask the question, what happens to these animals? And a lot of the time people would say, well, they, they should, you know, bacteria help us digest food. So would we expect them to starve to death? The answer to that is no. These animals are perfectly happy in that regard. What we do see, though, is when we try and, inf when we try and infect them with things, so if we, if we take the uh, normal animals or the, uh, the germ-free animals and try and infect them with things, the germ-free animals get very get um, high levels of infection. The normal animals have, with their healthy microbiota don't even notice they've been infected. So this is a Clostridium difficile infection, but it applies um, in many situations. So what we see straight away is actually this microbiota is protecting us from infections. It's, it's helping to um, keep us safe. And so we can actually think of it, we, we term this colonisation resistance, but you can think of it in an ecological model type way. At, at the first layer, what these bacteria are doing are actually using resources that the pathogens could use. They're taking up space, and therefore the pathogen can't get in and infect. 
And so you can imagine if you have a, if you have a nice healthy microbiota, lots of diversity, there's all of the potential niches that a pathogen could occupy are being occupied by these microbiota. As you go along this scale, if say you take an antibiotic treatment um, or you do something else to disrupt the microbiota, you get what we call a dysbiotic uh, community where basically there's not much microbiota there. And in that case, what's happening is there's all these resources available that pathogens could take advantage of. And obviously, if you encounter a pathogen, then the pathogen can do its thing and damage the epithelial layer, get in, in and actually cause the inflammation and the infection that we're, we're typically associating with. And as part of it doing this, obviously, it provides the colonization resistance, but it also feeds back into the immune system and says things are okay. When, when we're in a healthy state, we get signaling pathways coming through saying, keep going, things are, things are going well. And that's really the, the role we think the microbiota is now playing. So we can, we can talk about the microbiota, but the question then becomes, well, how do we measure it? How do we understand what it's doing over our lifetime? And we can, start to, we can start to understand these patterns. So here what we're looking at is at a baby, a baby when it's born is actually completely sterile, unless it's had an infection obviously at birth, but it should be completely sterile in a healthy situation. From birth, you're getting colonised by bacteria. And this colonisation is actually, what we think it's doing is starting to train the immune system, telling it what this is, these are good bacteria and obviously these are bad bacteria. And you can see whether it's through malnutrition or antibiotic treatment, you can change the proportions of these common uh, phyla of bacteria that we, we're seeing in individuals. And it, it continues to change right through um, to old age. So we, we know it's diverse, we know it's changing rapidly, and we're now starting to try and um, understand both the composition and then how we can manipulate that composition um, to improve our health. So being at the Sanger Institute, one of the things we like to do a lot is sequence. So as, as you can imagine, we take um, samples of people's microbiota um, from a faecal sample typically, um, process that and put it into a, a, a sequencing machine. And basically what that allows us to do is measure all the DNA in a sample. And we end up then with what effectively is a massive jigsaw puzzle. Um, a, a jigsaw puzzle with somewhere between 50 and 100 million pieces. And then, obviously, as they did with the Human Genome Project, if you can assemble this, gene, this uh, jigsaw puzzle, you can end up with a complete genome. The difficulty we have is actually our, our, our jigsaw puzzle is made up of, well, somewhere between 100 and 1,000 different jigsaw puzzles with a few million pieces in each. And we don't actually know what, the, what the, those outcomes look like. We also have a game where a lot of those pieces have been removed. So you can imagine now we have these jigsaw puzzles with millions of pieces and half of them are missing and we don't know what the, what the outcome should look like. So if that wasn't difficult enough, we can start to play the game of building our jigsaw puzzle. But some of the pieces also go into multiple, uh, multiple bacteria, multiple uh, jigsaw puzzles. So effectively what we have is we have a situation where we have lots of different species. We can take reads of their DNA and we can assemble some of them into uh, particular bacteria and say this bacteria is present. But trying to then differentiate into every single species becomes very difficult. So this is the concept. The computational task is very difficult. And the fundamental problem is we can estimate how many bacteria are in there, but we actually can't grow them in the lab. So we, can't, we can never actually check that what we think is in there is actually what's in there. So that's, where, that's the difficult situation that we're in. Um, and despite that, despite that, you can go and get this technology done yourself. So there's a company called Ubiome, if anyone's interested. I don't have shares or anything in them. But um, for, about, for about 90 US dollars, you can go and get your own microbiome sequence. You'll be still limited by the data we, we just talked about. You'll be able to get to sort of family or genus level of the bacteria. So for, for those of you who, who don't really um, know that, what that level is, these are members of the same family. So a wild dog in Africa, uh, maybe a, a domestic dog. I'm not sure if anyone's got one of them at home, but <laughs> there's questions if you do. Um, equally, we can't tell the difference between these two. They're in the same family. And we can't tell the difference between these two there in the same family. 
So you can understand straight away, we can, we can start to get a feel for what's in a community, but we can't really understand the detail of what's in the community. If you've, if you've got one of these at home, you've got problems. So, <laughs> so from a bacteria perspective and from a medicine perspective, you can imagine we need to be able to tell these apart. So take this as your community that you want to change. If you, if you were to select, for example, one of these, and you were to select one of these, you can see where this community is going. Very quickly you get to that. If you do the same thing and you select one of these, um, it might get trampled to death, I suppose, but <laughs> you get this, your community stays like that. So basically what we're, what, we're, what we're seeing here straight away is our level of understanding that we can get from the technologies just through sequencing is limited. We can, we can start to get an, a feel for what's in the community, but we can't actually tell the difference between things that are biologically relevant. Now, from what we're trying to do and what, what I'm really focused on doing is trying to modify the microbiota to improve disease outcomes. So can we actually make therapies by putting some of these bacteria in and change the composition of your microbiota to improve health? So can we, can we take a diseased individual, in this case a Clostridium difficile infected individual, um, so these, these patients basically, um, they usually take an antibiotic treatment, something like clindamycin that wipes out a lot of their microbiota. We, as we talked about before, you, it reduces their colonization resistance, they get the bacterial infection, and then it's this, for many patients, it's this ongoing cycle of antibiotic treatment. You take the antibiotic treatment off. Because Clostridium difficile forms these really resistant spores, they then get reinfected, and they just can't clear the disease. Every time they come off the antibiotics, they come get the, the diarrhea and the colitis-associated um, phenotypes, and then they um, obviously have to go back onto the antibiotics. What's really remarkable here is um, fecal microbiota transplant. So this is all, all we're doing here is we're, we're taking a complete fecal sample and we're putting it into these patients. And actually, in, very, in almost 90% of patients, that's enough to cure them. So these patients that can spend many years on antibiotic treatments with no resolution... You put this, this faecal transplant in and they're, they're effectively cured. And actually now there's a, an, another company, Open Biome, where you can buy your faecal microbiota preparation ready for um, colonization. Again, obviously, coming back to this theme of personalized medicine, the issues here are obvious. If you're putting a faecal sample into someone, how do you keep that composition consistent? It's, you, can't, you can't control for it, and you actually can't even test re reliably that when you're putting one thing into a person, you're putting the same thing in each time. Um, there's obviously, we, don't, we can't quantify it, there's risk of disease transfer. Um, but what's, what's really critical here is, for any individual, what's, what isn't a disease risk in the healthy individual may actually be a disease risk, depending on their genetics, depending on their... Uh, microbiota composition in the, in the person with the disease. So although it hasn't been a problem yet, it, there's a real risk that it could be a problem. And so what we've been working on doing is actually getting the bacteria. So instead of, instead of having to put a whole fecal um, mixture in, if we can get the individual bacteria out, we can then actually start to understand the composition and we can understand individual bacteria as well. It improves our ability with the sequencing, but I won't talk about that today. What it really allows us to do is say, this is the particular bacteria we want to put into an individual. We can then go to a clinical trial and we can actually test to see whether that bacteria is going to cause problems and, or, or identify patients where it may cause problems. Um, and we can come up with um, disease treatments that are, can be reproducibly put into patients. <coughs> what I will note here as well is actually the vast diversity um, in, in the types of bacteria that we're culturing out of people. So this is a relatively small number. It's about 137 species. Remember I said 100 to 1,000 earlier. But everywhere you see a red dot, we're talking a novel species. So this is something that people carry around with them but had never before been isolated in the lab. Everywhere you're seeing a blue dot, you're seeing a novel genus. And everywhere you're seeing a green dot, so up here, you're actually seeing a novel family. So that's like discovering cats and lions and that whole group exists. 
I mean, the diversity that we're all carrying around with us is absolutely amazing. And this is then interacting with our immune system, interacting with our daily processes to provide these levels of protection. And it also gives us the opportunity to start developing all sorts of new diseases, uh, new disease treatments, rather. <laughs> um, and so you can see straight away, what we're saying now is, can we get rid of faecal transplant? I mean, for the obvious reasons as well as I wouldn't want to be a doctor and do it. Um, and can we come up with these rationally selected mixtures of bacteria? And then ultimately, can we inform these rationally selected mixtures of bacteria based on the patient's microbiota state, the um, genetics of the patient? So can we genome sequence them and say particular SNPs make them, so particular mutations make them susceptible um, to infection by bacteria so we shouldn't be putting them into patients? And then ultimately, can we actually measure their immune state as well? So can, can we understand the complete picture about what's going on in those individuals and then pick the perfect mix of bacteria? Go into the freezer, pick out, say, you need some of bacteria X, some of bacteria Y, and that's your, that's your cure for a disease, so something, something like uh, C. diff infection, which I've spoken about. Or even things more, um, more uh, vague, so things like early life colonisation. So that's babies when they're first born, as I said before, are sterile. Can we introduce the right bacteria so that we reduce their chance of getting things like asthma or predisposing them to uh, various um, healthy, um, so avoiding obesity, for example. And then there's also interventions where we can go into people with things like inflammatory bowel diseases, irritable, irritable bowel syndrome, and even cancer. So we heard before about immunotherapies, so where um, a lot of those patients actually develop colitis as a side effect, where you get inflammation of um, the colon, and can we actually make mixtures of bacteria that would fix them as well? So you can see straight away there's huge potential for us to manipulate the immune response and understand... Um, and, and intervene to change the uh, biology, um, we're really now at the very start of this exciting area. Um, but this is what we're trying to do, and obviously, hopefully, we will have success very shortly. And just as, as for everyone else, there's a lot of people involved in this work that should be acknowledged. invite Micah and Owen back up to the, the floor and you can feel free to ask, ask any questions you'd like to. Um, this is really for Mr. McKinney, Dr. McKinney, I'm not sure what your uh, title is. Um, yeah. Um, uh, actually also, I guess it's for the last speaker whose name I didn't get. Sam. Um, but it, effectively, with, between the two of you, um, this business about bowel transplants, I've only just heard about fecal transplants. Um, and you're both almost saying that it's already old hat, that we need to be more specific, we need to actually culture the things we're transplanting instead of just letting it happen by accident. Is that right? So there's two aspects really. One is that traditionally med medicine has had pretty blunt tools. We haven't been, we don't have fantastic measurements. They're, they're pretty good. It's taken us hundreds of years to get here, but it's very clear we, we can do a lot better and we're trying to. In terms of transplants, Specifically, with regards to fecal transplants, it isn't something we do in routine practice. You, it has been done. It's more often done in mice than in people, um, for obvious reasons. And if you are going to do it in people, you can get the right cocktail of bugs and use that rather than simply having a tube that goes from one end to the other. Um, so it has been tried, and it has shown some promise, and certainly the science behind it is extremely promising, but we're not quite there yet. Interesting. It is actually, a, as you were saying, a blunt tool, and um, it's never actually reached mainstream. No. no. Fecal transplant has never reached mainstream. No, I mean, I think as well that, you know, it's not convenient for a doctor to get, you know, there is this open biome where they're trying to help yeah. doctors do it, but it's not convenient to get a donor. I mean, for us, we have to get the donation into an um, anaerobic cabinet within about 15 minutes. You can imagine trying to do that in a patient in a hospital not a straightforward thing to do so going mainstream unless so you have to have very specific patient cohorts that are really suffering that to make it a worthwhile thank you thank you uh, all the speakers for the talk my question is regarding uh, stress 
and stress-induced hormones and whether they trigger autoimmune diseases. If they do, once, once the stress is supposedly removed, what's the impact that has on the autoimmune that might have been triggered? And another question is, if an autoimmune is genetic, um, are all the treatments the same for everyone that has the same gene fault? I suppose that's my question. Thanks. Thanks. So there's two questions there, really. Firstly, for stress hormones. Um, most of the stress hormones, there are two broad types of stress hormones. One is the adrenaline you get when a spider jumps on you. You get a little burst. That has immunoregulatory effects very transiently. The second is the sort of, as a form of steroid hormone that's produced by your adrenal gland mostly that goes up in a slower fashion. That actually forms the mainstay of most treatments for uh, autoimmune disease because it has a general suppressive effect on your immune system. Uh, it's a very broad and general effect. And we just borrow what the body does otherwise. Uh, in other words, your body produces it. We make a synthetic form, put it in a tablet, and that's what you get. And that's a core component of many treatment regimes. So to answer your question, yes, stress can suppress and affect your immune system. Second bit in terms of genetics. Uh, two... One key distinction is the genetics are your genes are the bits you're born with that don't change throughout your life, broadly speaking, and I'm making apologies to cancer. Uh, so they don't change. What I was talking about before is whether your genes are switched on or not, which is slightly different. So genetics, in other words, the genes you're born with, are very important in autoimmune disease. Uh, and you can use them to some extent to get an idea of your risk of getting a disease. But in order to understand that, you've got to understand what we mean by risk. So for pretty much every autoimmune disease, the amount of risk you get from inheriting a given gene is tiny. Uh, so it's the equivalent of, say, um, say you bought a lottery ticket and you bought two lottery tickets. You're twice as likely as you are to win. But let's be honest, neither of you are likely to win. Uh, so you might have a 1 in 5 million chance, you've got a 1 in 10 million chance. Similarly, if you, in if you inherit from your parents a gene that predisposes to autoimmune disease, you might be twice as likely as someone else to get it, but the actual <coughs> chance of you getting is still very low. So that each gene that contributes to risk of autoimmune disease, it is now very clear, and this is true for pretty much every disease, there are what's, what are called complex polygenic diseases. And what that means is that each gene itself provides a tiny little amount of risk, and actually you inherit them in a complicated way, in complex patterns, and that's what gives you the ultimate risk of disease. I've kind of looked into microbiome for quite a while. And um, because I've been seriously ill, I mean, five years ago, I couldn't really walk. So I've been traveling around the world just learning about these things just because I needed to survive. And I found that when you're really ill, sometimes when you infiltrate your system with extra pathogens or extra uh, bacteria, your body can't actually deal with it. So I'm just wondering whether there needs to be more... In fact, anything synthetic, my body couldn't deal with it. So all the techniques that I've learned to get better have been more natural. And I'm just wondering whether there's more, there needs to be more consideration in how these things are harvested and administered in a more natural way. For example, traditionally, we would get most of the microbiomes from the soil. So our soil is, is so important. The microbes in our soil gets into our plants and the nutrition. And that's how we... We, our body knows how to deal with these things naturally and slowly. And sometimes by infiltrating things in such you know, a big quantity, it actually leads to um, imbalance in some areas. So I'm just wondering whether it needs to be looked at in a more natural way. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's a comment more towards the fecal microbiota transplants than the individual bacteria. So, I mean, one of the major problems we have with the individual bacteria is we'd be putting them in in very low numbers because they'll naturally expand and occupy the space that they want to occupy. Um, but, I mean, it's really now just at a very early stage. I mean, we're, we have the bacteria, we're able to test all these sorts of things. Um, up until last year, we didn't have the bacteria. We couldn't go in and say, what's the difference putting one bacteria versus a billion bacteria? Now we have the bacteria, we're able to answer those types of questions. But it's an it's a emerging area, we don't know the answers. One last question, and I'm afraid we've run out of time. Gentleman here in red. Thank you. A very stimulating talk. Um, can you just describe some of the interactions that you know about between human viral infection and microbiome? 
Yeah, I mean, it's the, the virus, the viral, the whole, I mean, there's, there's also naturally occurring viruses in, in there that I've skipped over completely. So um, the bottom line is we know very little about the interactions that go on. Um, we do, we're starting to get the techniques to actually get the DNA out at a, in a reliable way. So part of the problem is we've got to be able to measure it to know what's in there to start off with. Um, we focused on the bacteria fundamentally because that's um, the easier to grow in the laboratory, even though it hadn't been done for, um, obviously, for the history of people. But um, the viruses, I think, are going to have an, at least an equal, uh, equally important role. Um, and obviously, in terms of stimulation of the immune system, there's specific receptors on cells that are capable of detecting, um, and obviously, they have to interact. Um, but we just don't know, I think, is the answer, really. Okay, so I'd just like to thank you all for coming and thank our great speakers, Micah, Owen, Sam, and uh, I'll call the meeting to a close. Thank you very much. Thank you.